So sin, not what you think it is. Uh, those are fairly normal answers, I think. And in some ways, what they said was, was on target. In other ways, uh, what they said uh, was, was slightly missing the point. But that's normal. It's normal for people to miss the point when it comes to sin. And I, I want to suggest this morning that actually, even if you're somebody who's been coming to church for a million years, you could still be slightly missing the point about sin. And let me tell you why. A couple of weeks ago, and Andy started this series, he used a, um, an illustration of a white box. If you were here, you, maybe you'd remember it. He, he said, imagine that you were born and you lived in a white box. And, and so you want to try to talk about the outside world, but you can't because you're in a white box. And so you may speculate and talk to each other and say, oh, yeah, 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 maybe it's like this or there's this or there's that. But actually, if you're going to know the reality beyond your own white box, you'd need someone from outside to step in, right? And that's what the Bible, that's what Christianity claims God has done. Is he, he stepped into our world to show us what reality is, to show us what God is like, to show us what the world is all about. And so that uh, reminded me of another similar illustration that I heard, ooh, 10 plus years ago. And actually, it was Ron, Ron Frost, who's often here, who, who used this illustration one time. Uh, and it really struck me. And I thought, you know what? I, I need to use that to start this message. Imagine that you're going on a cruise. You, you've, somehow you've got tickets to a really expensive, luxury cruise. And you're on the ship, and you, you've got your cabin, and everything's sorted, and you're unpacked. And they take the ropes off the quayside, the ship pulls sideways, and starts to head out of the harbor. But then the unthinkable happens. Somehow, the, the ship, the entire ship, capsizes and goes completely upside down. And it just sits there. Now, you have to use your imagination because, A, there's a water supply to last a very long time. B, there's food to last forever. And C, no one comes to rescue you. But apart from that, this is a completely realistic illustration, right? So imagine you're on this cruise ship that is tipped upside down. And to begin with... It feels really strange. Your tables are riveted to the ceiling. Your lights are now your tables. And to get from one room to another, you have to climb over the threshold of a door, which is quite high. And, and uh, light switches are kind of too low. And, and everything's slightly wrong, and it feels strange. But what do you think would happen as the days become weeks, and the weeks become months, and the months become years, and the years become decades? That would become the new normal, wouldn't it? It would be completely normal, especially if you were born on that capsized ship. To you, that would be reality. That would be completely normal. To eat your food off a light fixture, to reach up to the shelf called a table hanging from a ceiling, to climb over a door frame to get to another room, that would be the new normal. And that is the effect of sin on our world. You see, when you read the Bible, the Bible only actually gives us a couple of pages of normal. There's only a couple of pages where everything is functioning the way it should, and then everything gets turned upside down. Maybe you've heard the story of Adam and Eve taking the fruit, doing what they weren't supposed to do, and sin entered into the world, and the effect of sin is absolutely catastrophic. It turns everything upside down. So that we've lived, every one of us have lived our entire life in a sin-upturned world where everything is the wrong way round, and yet to us it feels completely normal. We're going to look at a story that Jesus told. It's just a really short little story. 
But he told it because people that he was speaking to didn't know really what sin was. They didn't know what sin was and they had the wrong view of what God thought about sin, which actually is a lot like people today. If you talk to people today, like we did with the camera there, if you talk to people today, typically I think people will think two things. First of all, sin is something, and every one of these people use the word, it's something done. All right, it's doing the wrong thing. Sin is something that you do, although actually if you really push people, what they'll tend to say is sin is what other people do, right? It's, it's the other people who are worse than me. It's the people on Crime Stoppers. It's the people on Crime Watch. It's the people in the papers. It's people down the street. It may even be your next door neighbor, but it's someone else that does sin. And secondly, if you push them, they, they may say something along these lines. The word sin sounds kind of churchy. It sounds like something that, that the sort of the Judeo-Christian God who gave the Ten Commandments, it sounds like something that he would be obsessed with. All right, so the God of the Bible is obsessed with sin and his passion is to get us to conform to his standards and really what he wants to do is spoil our fun and make life kind of miserable. And that's all wrapped up in this word sin. So it's something other people do and it's something that God is completely obsessed with. And Jesus told a story that undoes both of those ideas. It's in Luke chapter 18. If you want to grab a Bible, we'll project it on the screen as well. But if you want to grab a Bible, it's on page 877, I think, in the, in the black Bibles there. Luke chapter 18. And Jesus is in uh, Jerusalem, presumably, uh, back in 2,000 years ago. And he's talking to some people. And actually, Luke, who writes this story down, he explains to us who Jesus was speaking to. And what he was getting at. Okay, so, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're all writing down a, the story of Jesus' life and what he did and so on. And Luke here says, right, I'm going to communicate this story that Jesus told. But let me make sure the reader knows who Jesus was speaking to. So look at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. It says this, Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so he's saying that when Jesus spoke, he was speaking to a group of people who trusted themselves, who thought, I've got it together. I am not a sinner. I am righteous. Now, you might think that that would be the kind of thing people would say kind of in the street. Are you a sinner? No, I'm not. It's what other people do. And people do say that. But this wasn't that kind of a crowd. These were people who were religious, people who had grown up going to the synagogue, which is kind of like church. They'd grown up hearing the Bible read. They'd memorized the Bible. They, they knew the Ten Commandments. They, they had a passion to make sure that they didn't break the rules. And so these were, in today's terms, these were people kind of like some of us, very religious, very churchy. And it's to them that Jesus wants to clarify that they don't know what sin is. Well, that should get our attention, right? Because it's easy to think, oh, yes, people out there need to know what sin is. But what if Jesus is saying, hey, you guys in there, you need to know what sin is too. Because you may not have it quite right. It may not be what you think it is either. And so Jesus is speaking to a group of people who in some ways could be a whole lot like us. And he's going to speak to them in a context where they are judging others. 
I am better than that person. I am better than that person. And the story he's going to tell is going to help them to understand what sin is. And he's going to help them to understand that actually sin and conformity to standards is not God's great obsession. It's important, but there's a reason why and there's something bigger going on for God. So look at the story as it, as it unfolds a bit. Uh, verse 10. Jesus says there were two men. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed in this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Now, when you hear that, do you find yourself going, ooh, he's a bit full of himself, isn't he? A little bit of a, a bit of a reaction maybe to it, because we don't like people who sound that confident. But bear in mind that in that culture, when Jesus is quoting this man's prayer, the people would have gone, yep, it's all true. They would have affirmed it. Because these two men, who are they? A Pharisee and a tax collector. These are labels that don't mean much to us. A Pharisee was a religious expert. It was a sort of a political party, but it was really a religious party. It was a group of people who were passionately committed to making sure that they never broke God's rules. And they were passionately committed to making sure that you didn't either. I was trying to think of what an equivalent analogy could be for a Pharisee today. We don't really have them, I don't think. We have lots of Pharisees, but not the equivalent in terms of the way they would have been perceived. I think we almost need to go back in time, maybe 50, 60 years, to when the world was black and white. Some of you remember black and white, right? And uh, when the world was black and white, I could just have this picture in my mind of two schoolboys walking home from school, eating a bag of crisps or something. And, and as they finish, they drop the bag on the floor. And then they see the scout leader who just needs to look, maybe clear his throat. <clears throat> and they'll quickly pick up the bag of crisps and, and go and throw it in a, in, a, in a rubbish bin nearby. And then maybe one will turn to the other and say, isn't it a good thing we have scout leaders in our community? You know, back in the world, it was so nice and black and white. Because that was kind of the reaction to the Pharisees. Isn't it good that we have people like them who are committed to keeping us on the straight and narrow? They're good people. They abide by the rules. And when we don't, they cough. That's what the Pharisees were like. That's at least how they were perceived. Now, the tax collector, that's a different story. We're talking opposite extremes. The tax collector was a traitor. Okay, a, tra- a tax collector was somebody who was from the, the local community, but he'd sold out and he was working for the enemies. The Roman soldiers and the Roman uh, occupying forces that were there, they needed somebody to help them collect taxes. They wanted to get a revenue stream. And they could easily be duped by the locals because different languages and stuff. So let's get a local guy who will sell out, work with us, and that way we can make sure we get as much tax as possible out of these people. And so the tax collector's job basically was to serve the enemy by getting as much money out of you as he possibly could, and in the process not just giving them money but also lining his own pockets. And if you dared to cough in his direction... He had some Roman muscles stood nearby with long spears ready to be used. You can imagine that the tax collectors were hated. These were the worst of the worst. These were the lowest category of sinners. They were absolute traitors to their people. 
And so when Jesus says there's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector and they're coming up to the temple, which is this centerpiece of of Jewish life, and they're coming to pray, if you're listening to that, you're already thinking, oh, this is going to get interesting. wonder what's going to happen. And so Jesus launches into describing the prayer of the Pharisee. And if you were there, you would have said, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, yep, true, tick, 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 yep, 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 that's absolutely right. He's not like those other people. He should be thankful that he's not like those other people, and he does do an awful lot of good things. Just pause and think about that. Maybe we can go back to having that up there, the, the prayer that he prayed. The details of that reveal a lot about sin. Here's what I mean, three things that I think Jesus is subtly trying to communicate, and he'll make crystal clear by the end of the story. First of all, that we think that sin is about behavior. It's about what we do. Notice the last line, the last little bit of that. I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all I get. What he's saying there is, okay, Jewish people, they're required to to fast once a year. I do it twice a week. I just want to, you know, go above and beyond. And, and you're supposed to tithe a tenth, give a tenth of everything you grow or everything you earn. But he's saying, when I go shopping and I buy ten apples, I immediately give one away because I'm tithing in case somebody up the chain has failed to tithe. Because I am so committed to doing the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing above and beyond what's expected and required. And so he's really full of that in in the sense of saying, God, check me out. I'm doing good stuff. And if we're honest, we sometimes pray the same thing, don't we? Come on, God. I've been faithful in going to church. You know how much money I've given to charity. You know how much I pray to you. It's all about doing in our way of thinking. And Jesus is going to rip the rug out from underneath this guy by the end of the story and show that actually behavior, as important as behavior is, behavior is not really the heart of the issue. So we think it's about behavior. Secondly, because of the upside-down cruise liner that we're in, not only do we think it's about behavior when it's not really about that especially, we also fall into this trap of thinking it's about comparison. Who made the world a competition anyway? You ever wonder that? Why is everything a competition? Why is it that when you're talking to someone, you can't help, but sometimes deep down feel like you're competing with them? And you may not do anything wrong. Your behavior may be perfect. You may be smiling and nodding and affirming and encouraging. While on the inside, what are you thinking? I wish I was as pretty as you, or I wish I was as strong as you, or I wish I was as successful as you, or I wish I earned as much money as you. And there's this insane jealousy stirred within us as we're comparing ourselves to others while on the outside we're doing the right thing. And so every relationship, every interaction is somehow marred by competition. Every relationship is somehow undone by a lack of trust. That's not the way the world's supposed to be. You see, sin is not just something we do periodically. Sin is the realm. It's the upside-down cruise liner that we call normal. That's the way we view sin. Uh, The way we view it is just normal, but the reality is it's pervading everything. It's in every fiber of everything, and it's ruining everything. So that we think it's just behavior, but it's more than that. We, We think competition's normal, but it's not. 
this kind of tear you down, build myself up, I'm better than you kind of competition. That's brokenness in action. And so when this guy's praying and he's saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like the unjust or the adulterer or even like this tax collector, what he's saying is, I'm better than them, therefore I'm okay. Isn't that something we all do? We see someone on the television or in the newspaper, we hear a story, or we remember someone we went to school with, and we go, well, I'm not like him, and so I must be all right. There's a third thing about sin that Jesus is weaving through his quote here as he gives this man's prayer. First of all, he's going to really critique the idea that it's just behavior. He's going to critique this comparison approach where we evaluate ourselves based in comparison uh, to one another. And the third thing that goes through this whole prayer that should make us go, is this. Let me read it clarifying what Jesus is or what this man is saying here. Let me just add in the words to complete the thoughts. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I am not like extortioners. I am not like the unjust. I am not like the adulterers. I am not like the tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Did you catch the word? You see what sin does to us? is it curves us completely in on ourselves. And so we become the fulcrum and the center and the hinge of the entire universe. And yet we don't see it. The the one sin that we consistently, persistently will never see in the mirror is the fact that we're looking in the mirror. It's the fact that I think everything's about me. It's about my opinion. It's about what I want. It's about other people coming into line with what I would prefer. And, And so instead of being team players, we become individualists. Instead of being part of a community, we scrap for what we want. And we we scrap for our influence and our power. It's sin in action. Because sin isn't just something we do sometimes. Sin is how our entire being is curved in on itself. A lot of hype about the iPhone 6. Are you going to are you going to upgrade to the iPhone 6? You know every one of us has an iHeart 1. Every one of us at the core of our being is self-wrapped up so that everything always circles around us, doesn't it? And sometimes that will manifest in the behavior of a of a grotesque sin like the people in the in the newspapers. And sometimes it will manifest in righteous and upstanding and religious behavior. But the problem's there the whole time. And this man who everybody in the crowd would have said, he's a good guy. Jesus is going to pull the rug in the end in a shocking way in reference to this man. But then he turns to the other one. He turns to the tax collector. And I suppose the question that that we find being answered here, indirectly and subtly, but it's there, is this. If sin is the realm that we live in, if sin affects everything about us so that we're completely corrupted, if our whole understanding of what is right is actually twisted and what's up is actually down, if the whole world is corrupted by sin, how in the world are we supposed to make sense of it? Well, the answer I think that we find in verse 13 is that we will never figure out the reality of sin with our own brains or with our own understanding or anything like that. It's not about us being able to think clearly. It's about us being broken. Look at what the tax collector says. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? He won't even go up to the front, up to the the place where the sacrifices are are taking place. He's standing right at the back. He's sort of hiding in the corner and and he's pounding on his own chest like like a Middle Eastern woman at a funeral. I mean, he's really just broken before God. And he knows that actually he's a sinner. And here's the thing, we like to talk about sin and evaluate sin like a bit of an object lesson, like it's out here. As if we can come up with a theory that explains it and deals with it and it's all sorted. But the reality is we will never see clearly until we're broken. We'll never see clearly until we are broken apart before God, recognizing that we are absolutely bankrupt. Now that... It's significant in this guy's case. Everyone knew when Jesus said there was a tax collector, everyone's booing and hissing and ready to throw things. If the guy was there, they would have been antagonistic. And yet the words that come out of his mouth reflect an understanding of reality that's profoundly on target. It says, I cannot fix myself. We live in a world of people. And our natural default response will always be, I can fix myself. I won't do it again, I promise. Yeah, you will. I'll never go there again. Really? How many times have you come to that point in your life where you say, I shouldn't have done that. I'll never do it again. And then two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years later, you're kicking yourself because you've gone back and you've done it again. The reality is we can't fix ourselves. And and we need to be broken before God, recognizing that, that, that we're absolutely bankrupt. And we need him to take care of the issue. Now, in terms of what the the tax collector actually says here, it's interesting. In the the, the words that the the Bible was originally written in, the original language, he doesn't use the normal word for mercy. You know, when I I hear the word mercy, I think of being in the playground with someone kind of breaking my fingers. And I go, oh, mercy, you know, and say, please stop. But that's not the word that he uses here. The, The word he uses here is the word that, really it means, God, would you... Would you provide a sacrifice to take care of my sin? Because I'm a sinner. Would you provide the sacrifice? I mean, just think about it. He stood there in this temple. We can't even begin to imagine what it was like in that temple. You go up through the gate uh, into the court of Israel. And over the fence, there are priests who will receive your sheep. And then will slit its throat and pour out the blood. And then burn the sheep. Why? Not because they're collecting sheep carcasses. But because sin is serious. And God wanted the people to know that sin is serious. So they had to bring these sacrifices and, the, and just the, the incredible ugliness and the noise and the stench of death. It was just hideous and it was in your face. And here's this guy standing far off. He hasn't even brought a sacrifice. He's saying, God, I need you to provide the sacrifice because my sin is so bad. I'm so corrupted and so broken. Would you provide a sacrifice for me? I'm the sinner. And this guy sees clearly. He's the one guy on the cruise liner that's upside down that suddenly is saying, we're upside down. That something's got to be changed. Something's got to be done. And it's got to be done from the outside. There's nothing we can do about it. Now, just ponder that for a moment, because to me, this is one of, the, one of the things that I've been chewing on this week. I had a great conversation with a good friend yesterday that just pondered it some more. What does this mean? One of the things that this means is that 
actually, if we're in a world where climbing the ladder, being successful, is actually going in exactly the wrong direction, doesn't that mean that maybe God loves you too much to give you what you ask for? God, give me that job. God, give me health. Give me success. Give me the, uh, the, the three A stars. Give me everything that I need. And God, in his love, might say, you know what? I love you too much. My answer is no. And God, in his love, actually might lead us toward brokenness. Because actually, that's the place we need to be. We, we think we get it. We think that we know which way is up, and we're exactly wrong. And you might be sitting here going, oh, this is irrelevant to me. I don't care. I'm fine. Well, just plug this away somewhere. At some point in life, God may bring you down and make you crash because he loves you too much to let you carry on in the myth and in the lie that you're a godlike being who can be in charge of your own universe and the center of everything. Maybe you're sitting here this morning going, actually, I feel like my life is kind of It's going pear shape. It's collapsing. Things are going wrong. It's just frustrating. It's miserable. What in the world? Maybe what in the world is God is in your world saying, Oi, I want to get your attention. I love you. I need you to know that you're in a world that's upside down. And I need you to know that you need me. That's something to chew on, isn't it? That maybe the very opposite of what we want is what we need. And the beauty of it is that our God is willing to do whatever it takes to get our attention, whatever it takes to humble us and to bring us to the place where we go, I need you. And he says, you've got me. That, that man in the temple praying, God, would you provide a sacrifice for me was probably thinking sheep. But what did Jesus do? You keep reading through Luke, you come to the end of the gospel and you've got Jesus hanging naked on a cross, dying, broken, in front of a world that was gloating and mocking and saying, you're the epitome of failure. And in doing so, Jesus was saying, this is the way up. I'm drawing people to my Father. You see, God is willing not only to humble us so that we need him, he's willing first to humble himself to absolutely rock our categories and to challenge our perception of what success is. We think we've got it all together. We think we know what we're here for. And God says, Check out the cross and I'll show you what real life is. It's giving yourself away. And I've done it because I want you to be in my family. Which brings us back to the first question. What is it that's so wrong about these standard views of sin? First of all, that sin is what other people do. And secondly, that sin is God's great obsession. That we must conform to his standards. Look at how this story ends. Verse 14. This is the bit that would have taken the breath away as people were listening. This was the the rug pull. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means he went home with a good relationship with God. When God looked at him, he said, that one is mine and he is good. Wow, God is gracious. God is merciful. Amazing. But then Jesus comes out with the other bit. He says, rather than the other. That's the shocker. Mr. Religious, Mr. Do-good, Mr. Scout leader, Mr. Church attender, Mr. Church leader, Mr. Theologian, Mr. Expert, Mr. Get it right all the time and make sure everybody sees you performing well. He does not go home with any sort of relationship with God because God's primary concern is not that we conform. 
God's primary concern. He's not sitting on his throne right now looking at you going, oh, I wish you'd stop doing that. I wish you'd behave. God's primary concern is not that we conform. His primary concern is that we come home. That's why he takes sin so seriously. Because sin, whether it's gross or whether it's respectable, sin keeps us distant from him. Sin keeps us swimming around in this lie and this myth that I'm the center of the universe and I'm like a godlike figure and check me out and I can be in charge. And God loves us too much for that. It's not that he wants us to become sour-faced and kind of abiding by rules and losing all our fun. He wants us to know life to the full, which comes from being in relationship with him. He wants us to know what it is to be truly alive, which we saw last week when Dave was speaking, comes from knowing and understanding him, not from success, not from our CV, not from what we can earn and what we can do. It comes from knowing him and God is prepared to pay the price, to give the sacrifice, to bring us back and to bring us home. And so Jesus comes to the end of the passage and he says this, everyone who exalts himself, Everyone who thinks that they're going to be a success and be a somebody will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The only way isn't up. With God, the way is down. Instead of climbing and aspiring and succeeding and being someone, God invites us right down onto our knees, onto our faces, just to cry out before him and say, God, I'm a mess. I just mess it all up. Even the good stuff I do is corrupted to the core. And I recognize that you love me. And that you're not really passionately concerned and and sweating in stress about whether I'm going to conform to the standards or not. Your real concern is whether I'm coming home to you or not. Because if I come home to you, if I'm brought into your family, then the behavior will take care of itself. I'll trust you to fix those things. I'll trust you to make me a good person. God, I am broken. I need you. Religion says, get your act together. God says, you can't. Religion says, fix yourself. God says, I'll take care of it. And God says, I love you. And I love you so much that if it's necessary, I'm going to trip you up. And I'm going to mess with your circumstances and I'm going to mess with your life because I love you too much to let you carry on in the myth and in the lie that you're a mini God. You're not. You're better than that. You're a human being made in my image and I want to be in relationship with you and I want to give you life. And so would you humble yourself? If not, I will. But I want you home. Sin is not what you think it is. It's not just what other people do and it's not God's great obsession. Sin is at the core of who every one of us is. And it's God's big concern to deal with that and to bring us home. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for the story that we just looked at. Thank you for the way that Jesus in just a few lines could, could cut right the way through the mess of, of pride and religiousness. And Lord, we pray as a church, as a community of people right here, that you would cut right through all the plastic that we can generate in our lives and cut to the core of who we are. And Lord, draw us into the forgiveness that you offer in Jesus Christ. 
I pray for any here who don't know you, who don't know what it is to be in your family. Would you pursue them by your spirit? Nag at them and do everything it takes to get their attention. But Lord, would you do the same thing for those of us who do know you? Where there's plastic in our lives, where we're living a bit of a charade in front of others. Lord, would you uh, help us to not fool ourselves anymore, but to be broken before you so that we can see sin clearly. And more than that, that we can celebrate your solution. We're going to look more at that next week, Lord. But I pray that this week we will just ponder what we've seen here. And that you'd bring clarity and bring hope into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.